Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, today we'll be casting our net towards the second Disney live-action remake of the year, Guy Ritchie's Aladdin. But first, how are you doing? You're back in Boston now, I believe? Yeah, I'm back in Boston. Came back up uh, two days ago. Now we're recording on a, on Memorial Day Monday. And... Yeah, I got back up Saturday night. It's always a fun travel experience because there's no direct flights from Chattanooga to Boston. So connect- connections are always a wonderful time. My flight was delayed again, but that's uh, to be expected at this point. But that's okay. How about you? I know you recently also had a, a big move yourself. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm back here uh, in, in North Carolina. I'm back in Raleigh now um, for the summer. Moved into my what was what was promised to be an apartment, but is really kind of more of a glorified dorm. I'm definitely getting some nostalgia back to my college days here, um, but it it'll be fine for the summer. Other than the fact that I was felt very close to death the other day when I was moving my stuff in in the 95 degree heat up three flights of stairs. Uh, I would not recommend. <laughs> Does not come strongly recommended from the sunlight. Yeah. It's kind of grew. Two out of ten would not recommend. There you go. Worst movie of the year. Yeah, well, I don't know. Dumbo is still pretty bad, but uh, well, well, Scott, we Dumbo. <laughs> good segue. Yeah, uh, well, you know, speaking of movies that actually aren't bad, uh, we did have a chance to catch Booksmart together um, over the past week. Uh, actually, you've seen it three times now, uh, but we'll be talking about that next week on our review roundup. Uh, but before we do that, let's dive into the latest Disney remake, Aladdin, directed by Guy Ritchie. Aladdin is, of course, the story of the titular thief a street urchin in the kingdom of Agrabah who, along with his trusty monkey sidekick, Abu, picks pockets to survive. Played by Mina Masood, Aladdin is content with his life until he meets the beautiful Princess Jasmine, played by Naomi Scott, and falls for her. The only problem? Under the law of Agrabah, a princess can only marry a prince, which Aladdin is not. Enter Jafar, played by Marwan Kenzari, the villainous second-in-command to Jasmine's father, the Sultan. Jafar plots to help Aladdin get his wish of becoming a prince, but only if Aladdin helps him retrieve the magic lamp within which Will Smith's genie has been trapped. And you know the rest. Scott, the question we talk about a lot with these Disney remakes is simply whether they needed to be made at all. Does Aladdin justify its existence and sweep you away on a magic carpet ride, or would fans of the original be better off popping in their Blu-ray for another rewatch? You know, I think that's a good question, and I know that's like the conversation we always have whenever we, you know, text back and forth after we see a movie. It was the conversation that we had when I texted you after I saw this because I saw this on Friday. You saw this yesterday, and you were like, "What?" Like, and because I ended my like little text storm to you with, "The original is probably better." But that being said, and, and and you asked the question, okay, at that point, like, okay, well, then what's the point if the original is better? And my response to that is. Because this movie doesn't try to completely just recreate the original, which which feels like is what they're trying to do with The Lion King, for example, coming out later this year. Uh, obviously, Dumbo was the other end of the spectrum, where if The Lion King seems like it's trying to recreate scene by scene the animated movie, Dumbo 
just took a you know took an entirely new view of that story and that character. And I think that Aladdin is a happy medium between those two for me. I know I think people, uh, different people, want different things from these live action remakes. Some people, I'm sure, are really excited about a live action, you know, scene for scene recreation of the Lion King. And I think some people are probably, even though Dumbo, I think was lackluster in a lot of ways, was probably excited that Dumbo did something like try to tell a, a pretty different story. And for, for me, I, I like this because we know that Aladdin, the animated movie, the original animated movie from you know the early 90s, is a banger. Like the movie is great at the time. I'd say it still, for the most part, holds up pretty well. But I think that what this live action remake does is that it takes those parts that maybe don't hold up as well and it really... Uh, updates and modernizes some of those things. I mean, you talk about giving Jasmine a much more prominent, empowering role for a, you know a princess that fits the modern times and the modern Disney movies that we've seen with strong female lead characters. I think Jasmine is given an update that fits that mold, less the mold of you know the 1990s from Aladdin. I think another example of that is how they've updated some of the lyrics, uh, and even to also touch on another Jasmine-related point, they gave Jasmine kind of they gave her. Um, I knew, I knew oh, I song, the actress's yeah. name right not yeah Nassim Pedrad's uh oh yeah that too, yeah. her hand her handmaid that's that's who it was um and yes to your point they gave her a song and I think these are all really strong additions to that arc and in some ways you could even argue they actually gave Jasmine an arc in this movie or something substantive and I think that that's really something that I appreciated deeply as for the other things that are different about this movie, of course, we don't have Robin Williams for this movie. I'm sure if he was alive, they would have tried to get him, just like you're seeing with James Earl Jones playing the voice of Mufasa in the Lion King movie. But unfortunately, you know, Robin Williams, of course, has passed. And they went a, a new direction. They found someone in Will Smith who you can argue whether or not he's iconic. I think he's certainly as famous as Robin Williams is, if not more. And it definitely appeals to maybe a different community in that sense. And I think what Will Smith was able to do with that role uh, was was good for what I expected. I was worried that he might try to recreate a little bit of that Robin Williams vibe to the genie. And I don't think that he did. I think that he, you know, he and the writers and of course the director as well paid good homage to Robin Williams's uh, genie. And what Will Smith then did was make that genie his own. I think that, you, you know, you, you and I may discuss some issues that we had or some things that didn't, maybe didn't necessarily work or fit in the movie with that genie character. But the fact that Will Smith did not try to, you know, recreate Robin Williams genie and do his own thing and be Will Smith, I think is a really good thing about this movie. Uh, as for the kind of last thing I want to touch on in terms of general thoughts, and we can dive into more of all these deeply, but the, you know, Guy Ritchie as the director here, I think that he's a fascinating choice to direct a live action Aladdin movie. And I'm sure that, you know, you felt, you felt the same, whether or not we agree on the minutia, it's definitely an interesting choice. And you can see that it's both a good and a bad thing. In my opinion, I think it's a good thing because Guy Ritchie is the kind of director who would be willing to take all of these risks and make all these updates because he's Guy Ritchie. He's going to do whatever he wants, right? He's not going to, you know, have a conversation with Disney. Disney's not going to tell him, Hey, you know what? You need to go rewatch that Aladdin animated movie and you need to just make it from, make it again exactly the way we did it the first time. You know, he's not going to be a director who does that. And he adds his own flair to the movie. Sometimes I think that works out. Other times I think it doesn't work out. I think some of those examples could be the, in, you know, the incessant and unnecessary slow, slow motion added to some scenes, uh, which, you, which is like a trademark, of course, of some like, you know, bombastic action movies. Uh, probably all of the King Arthur movie that he did a few years ago. So it, it's one of those things where you, you see his flair and I'm happy that we got that flair. Like I'm happy that it exists. It just didn't necessarily work in the way, in the context 
uh, in some parts of this movie. So overall, just to kind of sum things up and throw things over to you, I really liked this movie. I I don't know what my expectations were going into it, but whatever they were, I think this movie surpassed it. Any concerns that I really had, most of them were pretty assuaged by the end of the movie because I thought the acting was great. I appreciated the new directions and the new spins they put on some of the characters and some of the plot points and et cetera, and not trying to go, you know, scene by scene from the original. And I also like that they still respected how like the the great parts, the the parts that are timeless for the original as well. And so overall, I I definitely recommend going to see this movie. Yeah, you know, to go off your point about the director there, I think that it's interesting if you look at the strategy sort of that Disney has taken with respect to the directors in these movies. I think you look at Lion King and you have John Favreau directing who, okay, yeah, he's a fine director, but he's not the type of director who is going to impose his own vision on the Lion King. Like, I think not at all. Uh, you would expect a pretty faithful retread of the Lion King. Uh, yeah, I mean, he is Mr. Fanservice as a yeah, director, like, right. which is not a bad thing. It's just, a, to your point, a very clear direction that they're going with that. Yeah, and at the same time, if you look at Dumbo and you look at Aladdin, I think you have directors in Tim Burton and Guy Ritchie who are very much not that, right? They're very much known for their own unique flair, which, you know, on on the page may not seem like it goes particularly well with this sort of Disney adventure film. And so Disney seems to be kind of saying, okay, we're going to try something out here. We're going to let these sort of auteur directors come in and, you know, put some sort of a spin on these classics. And if it works, then great, it works. If it doesn't work, we still have Lion King, which people are going to love, you know, it, worst case scenario, because they are, I mean, of the three, I think you, you have to expect that that one's going to be the most sort of shot by shot remake. And I think that with Dumbo, what we saw was there seemed to be some tension between Tim Burton and Tim Burton's vision for the movie and what Disney wanted to do with it to the extent that, at times it felt like Tim Burton was sort of being hindered from making the movie that he wanted to make uh, by Disney. But here, I think, to your point, uh, we have sort of a happy medium. I think that Disney has said, okay, Guy Ritchie, you know, we're going to give you a, a billion dollars to make this movie that's going to make $3 billion, you know, obviously exaggerating here. But, uh, you know, here's a couple things you can't do in terms of, you know, what you're usually known for doing in movies. We're not going to let you do everything uh, that you want to do in Aladdin. And I think that Guy Ritchie has said, okay, that's fine. And he's gone out and uh, made what is a really enjoyable movie. You know, you mentioned the slow-mo flourishes. I think, you know, there were one or two times that I noticed it, but I don't know that I would say that it was incessant or, or really that distracting. Um yeah, no, I'm more incessant that he he is known for doing that incessantly yeah. in his movies. It's a good point to, to clarify that. I don't think it's complete overkill in this movie. Yeah, but yeah, and so for the most part, I thought that he did a good job staying out of his own way in terms of directing this movie while still, you know, giving a, a unique spectacle um, for us to behold. And I think that, you know, his vision, along with some of the changes that they've made, really make this Aladdin movie uh, work more than any of the other Disney remakes that I've seen. You know, I, I, I was saying to someone last night about Beauty and the Beast, you know, if if I were to sit down and say, I want to watch Beauty and the Beast, 10 out of 10 times I would watch the original movie um, just because the, the, the remake did not add anything new whatsoever that wasn't already better in the original. But with Aladdin, you know, in the future, if I want to sit down and watch Aladdin, 
Sometimes I'm probably going to watch the original. Sometimes I'm probably going to watch this movie. And I think that's probably the highest compliment you can pay to a live action remake like this, that it doesn't take away from the legacy of the original, but it still creates something new that you want to watch sometimes, maybe in place of the original. Uh, and I think that that's a tall order for a director to achieve, especially for a movie that is as beloved as Aladdin. But I think they did a nice job of balancing the nostalgia of things that call back to the old movie. And again, adding new things like all the things you've mentioned, you know, the, a better arc for Jasmine, uh, the addition of the handmaiden character, and also, you know, sort of the, with the addition of that character, the relationship that happens between her and Will Smith, uh, Will Smith as the genie. Um, and then, Will Smith as, you know, talking of Will Smith as the genie, that's maybe like the biggest change of all from the original is that this character is given a completely new tenor, as you mentioned. And I think that, you know, you said if, if Robin Williams had been alive, they probably would have brought him back. And that's probably right. But, you know, I'm kind of glad they didn't bring him back because I think that what Will Smith brings is something almost as engaging. I mean, he has obviously he has a very tall task to live up to here with with Robin Williams performance. But, you know, he brings something really fresh and it's really one of his best performances that I've seen in a long time. Uh, and he calls back to that original performance uh, of Robin Williams in a couple moments, but he doesn't overdo it because he's more concerned with creating a new character. And I was really impressed with how successful he was in doing that. So, yeah, I really did have a good time with this. I was very skeptical going in uh, just because of what we talked about with how these Disney live action remakes kind of feel unnecessary or, you know, in the case of Dumbo are just really sort of misguided. And neither one of those is the case here. I think, again, this is the strongest of the remakes so far. And it's absolutely a movie that you can and should take your whole family to um, over the next few weeks. And yeah, I, I, I had a great time with it. I was talking with a, a friend and I was saying, you know, honestly, when you get when you get back home, you should you should take like your parents and, you know, your two siblings and just go see Aladdin. It's so much fun to I mean, you look at the Rotten Tomato score, and yeah, it doesn't have the best Rotten Tomato score of all time. Uh, but if you turn your, you know, turn your head and look at the cinema score, this thing has an A. Yeah, and a couple points on that. First of all, with respect to taking your whole family to see it, you know, I have to say, and you'll probably call me an old grandma for saying this, and I probably am. But you know, when we see movies like John Wick Three that are hyper violent, when we see something like Booksmart or Under the Silver Lake, which has a lot of like over-the-top sexual content. Yeah, adult themes. Right, sure. yes. It's nice every now and then to see this movie, to see a movie like this, which is just nice, wholesome entertainment that, you know, can accomplish as as much uh, as those other movies can. I mean, you know, I, I love those all of those other movies that I mentioned there. But every now and then, it's nice to have a little palate cleanser, you know, from uh, the, the incessant sort of adult content that a lot of these other movies have. Uh, so I appreciated that about this movie uh, and that movies like this are still getting made. And with respect to the what you said about the Rotten Tomato score, you know, I am a little disappointed that it's not higher because I think a lot of critics from what I've seen have really resorted to that critique of, well, this movie's pointless, you know, it didn't need to be made, the original's fine. Which, yes, it can be a valid critique. And, you know, again, going into this movie, kind of expected that to be my critique. But I don't know how you can watch this movie and say that it's not adding new things to the Aladdin um, story. I mean, OK, may maybe um, you still would watch the original every time. But to call it pointless and not adding anything new, I think, is kind of a lazy critique 
um, and doesn't really reflect what you get on screen when you go to see this movie. So it, it is a little disappointing to see that. But, you know, watching this movie the whole time, I was thinking audiences are going to love this. Uh, and I think this is one where where certainly we, we don't we're not anything approaching professional critics, but we at least try to give off some impression of, of authenticity. But for this one, I sort of put my critic hat down and say, I'm enjoying this. There's no reason why I should sit here and try to, you know, pick holes in it when really this movie is meant to be an enjoyable spectacle. And it is that. All right, uh, let's move on and talk about some of the performances now, Scott. I think that, you know, Aladdin is a lot of different uh, types of movie. It's a fantasy movie. It's an adventure, but it's also a romance. And that's really what's at its heart. You know, that's what's driving the plot. Aladdin wants to win Jasmine over. Uh, and that's why he's going through all of this with the genie. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the movie depends on how well the romance works and, and the central performances there. So playing Aladdin, of course, we have Mina Masood. This is really sort of his first substantial role in anything. Uh, and on the other side, we have Naomi Scott as Jasmine, who really hasn't done much either outside of she was in Power Rangers, uh, played the Pink Ranger. So what did you think about these two performances from these newcomers? Uh, did they work? as characters on their own, and then did they work well together? Naomi Scott, maybe not known for her, her filmography, but but quite a good artist, and I think that's evident by how well she can sing in this movie. Her songs, you know, we talked about that a, a new original song that she was given. I think it's called Speechless uh, towards the end of the movie. I thought she absolutely crushed that because that's a solo song from her. No one else is in that one with her. And then she also, I think, does a great job with Whole New World, which is the the anthem of, of, of this of this movie, right? I mean, there are so many great songs from the soundtrack from both the original and this one, but that's the one that probably stands out the most. And I think that she's a big part of that. Uh, I was watching one, I think Christian Harloff's review of, of Aladdin. He said that when she starts singing in a whole new world, Mina Masood's Aladdin almost falls off the carpet because of how good she can sing, (laughs) Uh, which I think is probably about accurate. And so I guess since I've already started talking about Naomi Scott's Jasmine, I might as well keep going with this one. I think that she's, one of the best parts of the movie. I mean, you talk about Will Smith being a, a standout performance. I think that's just the nature of the genie role that that's kind of going to be a make or break role. You're either going to love it or you're going to, yeah, you're either going to think it's, it works or it doesn't work. And there's kind of very little middle ground. I think there's probably a little bit more middle ground with the, with the Jasmine role. And I think Naomi Scott does a really good job. When I saw her cast in this role, obviously as Jasmine, my impression was that it was going to be a very different role than that of her pink Ranger role. I would say that <laughs> good, it was less, good call. <laughs> well, no. And that, but that being said, it was less different than I thought it was because they, oh, okay. they go such a different direction with this character. Yes. The, character is still different she's not fighting some you know i don't even remember the name of the villain rita repulsa in power rangers right but the point is is that they they empower this character so much more in this movie and i think that naomi scott ends up being a perfect character for this and i think that she's going to become an iconic disney princess i really think that i think she does a really good job when people see her in her next movie, which is going to be later this year in Charlie's Angels. If they're a little bit younger and Naomi Scott as Jasmine was their first introduction, they're going to see her on screen and they're going to think Princess Jasmine because of how good a job she did with it. I think that she has great chemistry with Mina Masood. I think that she does. She puts in a really good performance as a standalone Jasmine, both in terms of how she interacts with Aladdin, how she interacts with her father, how she interacts with Jafar, but also how she crafts and goes along her own narrative arc, right? Which is something that we talked about is pretty different in this movie. And so I'm really glad that they went with a relative no-name person 
who clearly fit the role very well and what she ultimately made of the of the character. Things I thought were good. I think their chemistry was good between the two of them. And I think probably Aladdin of these three things that I'm discussing, Minamasud's performance was probably the the weakest. But I don't mean to say that that is a bad performance. I still think it's a good performance. I just don't think it lives up to the level of Jasmine, of Will Smith in this movie, kind of the other two primary roles, uh, unless you count, of course, Jafar as, as a fourth maybe. But to, to that point, I think that Minimasu does a good job. Because he's such an unknown, because he's so untested, I think that actually helps him quite a bit. I don't have any preconceived notions of what he's going to be like. There was just something about his performance in, in certain parts of the movie that just felt a little bit off. I wasn't sure if it was his acting or if it was the direction that Guy Ritchie was giving, or maybe it was his character arc that, that didn't quite feel like it hit the right notes. But there were moments where I just felt like the performance didn't quite match the what I was expecting or, or quite what the tone was in that particular moment. I don't want to dwell too much on that, though, because I think he has such a heavy task. That first scene when you jump into the world of Agrabah, and you get him in the streets, and he does end up meeting Princess Jasmine, but I think he really has to carry that opening sequence. And he, and if he fails in that opening sequence to capture you, I think the movie is probably over for you right there. Cause if Aladdin immediately takes you out of the movie, it like the, 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 you know, the jig is up basically. And I think that Minimasu does a good job making a good first impression, maybe not a great one, but a good enough one to capture me. And then, you know, I'm in it there. You know, I'm in, I'm in the movie. The movie can goes, goes on its way, takes me to the other places it's taking me to. And the other aspects, which I do think are a little bit better than his performance, really push the movie uh, over the line and carry it, carry it the rest of the way. To talk about Mina Masood, I think that, you know, it, it's not a role that requires a huge amount of acting chops. Um, it, you know, it's not meant to, to go to some, you know, incredible actor. And I think that, you know, maybe what you're, what you're expressing there with what seems off about his performance is just a lack uh, of experience, a lack of, um, you know, opportunities in big projects like this too. But, but I think, yes, it doesn't take away from his performance uh, because I think really what this character is meant to do is be charming. And he is charming. He has that sort of boyish charm that Aladdin is known for while still having that sort of, you know, mischievous twinkle in his eye, you know, that he's, while, while you're admiring his charm, he's, uh, you know, stealing from you, or at least Abu is stealing from you. That's actually what I thought was I was maybe expecting more of. Is that I was expecting a little bit more mischievous charm. I shouldn't say mischievous charm. The charm was certainly there. He's like very maybe he's a little too wholesome. That, that's exactly it, and I think that's exactly what it is. I think one of, obviously one of the selling points of writing is that he's a street rat. And it's clear that he is that. There was no point where I doubted that in terms of the performance in the movie. I, I guess I didn't get that. I don't. It's not maliciousness, right? Because it's not. It's not necessarily malicious. But I didn't get that sort of mischievousness of his character. Uh, he was just maybe a little bit too nice, right? But that's also. I think that might be a rock and a hard place with the character of Aladdin itself. And I think you know it's a tough line to walk because yep. we still have to like him as a character, exactly. right? Um, yep. Uh, so you can't lean into that too much, but you know, I definitely see, I definitely see your critique there, but I think that it mainly applies to the scenes where it's just Aladdin on screen, which there aren't really many of, Mm -hmm. which I think is a good thing because to your point, his performance is the strongest when he's playing off someone else in the scene, whether it's Will Smith or whether it's uh, Naomi Scott, you know, their chemistry is really good, 
this movie has more romance in it, even though our characters share like one kiss the entire time, than you know, movies that would probably go a lot further in the way that they depict their romance. So, you know, I appreciated that. And I think that the chemistry was really good between the characters. And I do like what they did with uh, Jasmine, with giving her more of an arc. I think that, you know, at first I sort of, you know, when she's going off about how she wants to be the Sultan and all of this, I did roll my eyes a little bit. Um, because I thought, okay, here we go. You know, it's 2019. We got to make everything woke now. But I think that by the end, they definitely won me over with it. The new song is good. And I mean, they don't, it's still in the spirit of the narrative, right? I don't think that it's like very distracting or, or, or turns it into a drastically different story, which is not something that I, I really would have wanted. And, and yeah, it makes sense. Definitely considering where we are with the, the landscape of, you know, especially with the Disney princess landscape in 2019, it makes sense that you're going to do this with the characters. So, you know, despite my initial sort of skepticism, I think by the end, they definitely won me over with with what they did with this character. And yeah, her performance is really strong what, when she's singing, but also, you know, her acting is good as well. She has some good scenes with, with Nassim Padrad as the handmaiden. Yeah, she, th- th- those two of the combo, I think, you know, probably not enough credit will be given to Nassim Padrad's character. I'm not, I mean, her performance is good but i think the character itself and like the inception of that character to complement jasmine is so perfect for this yeah but so i you know i like that her character was strong and defiant but at the same time uh you could still see how she could be won over by aladdin uh, and you know the the romance made sense so um overall i think a really solid job by two performers who you know i had no familiarity with whatsoever going into the movie All right, let's move on to someone who we do have uh, a fair amount of familiarity with going into this movie. And that, of course, is Will Smith. You know, as I said, he has a very unenviable task here of following what is probably one of the most iconic voice performances in any animated movie uh, of Robin Williams as the genie in the original Aladdin. You know, we've given our thoughts on his performance and, and, and what he's able to do with the character. But you want to say a little bit more about what he brings to the character that's new. Yeah, he. You know, we talk about this movie getting modernized and getting. Some people will call it a refresh, even maybe. And I think that if you're looking for a refresh, I think probably Will Smith in in this kind of role is about as refreshing as you'll get. I mean, he has such a fresh take on this genie performance, and it's such a good thing, right? Like they, I feel like they probably spent a lot of time in the writers' room, you know, on set, off camera, uh, mastering and perfecting a lot of these like new tweaks and changes they're going to make they made to you know his his entire character right like yes he's still the genie but his you know his lines his script not going to be anything like what not exactly the same as what we got with Robin Williams in the original and that is also true of his songs right and you know, you know never had a friend like me is a, is a lyrically pretty different song besides the obvious you know the obvious hook of the song which is you know you never had a friend like me and I think that those elements of it for the new people who are coming to this movie, they're going to find that really refreshing. You know, maybe someone who wouldn't resonate with, you know, the references, the jokes and the humor of I think it was 1992 when, when Robin Williams, you know, had this performance. I think that those people who are a little bit younger, you know, someone maybe our age or even probably even a little bit younger. And obviously, of course, children uh, who would go who would go see this movie are probably really going to enjoy Will Smith's performance from a, a modern day sense. It's not that they wouldn't also still enjoy Robin Williams's performance. 
even though it's the same thing, like I think people are going to like Will Smith for his take on the performance, the humor that he provides it. But it's a humor with very different sensibilities, I think. And I think that those sensibilities that Will Smith brings, you know, into so many of his roles, but particularly this type of role. Yes, there was a lot made of the fact that the genie was blue and that was a weird look, a weird CG animation, and that it felt really weird. I have no idea before that initial reaction in the trailer whether they made any changes to how mm-hmm. much you saw blue genie in this film versus, you know, human humanoid version of the, of the genie. I don't know if they made any changes to that, but I thought there was a good balance. And I, I actually didn't have uh, as much problem. I think as other people did with the blue look of the genie when he does, you know, he does first come out of the lamp and, and those moments throughout the rest of the film where he does come up. So overall, I think that Will Smith really crushes this role both in terms of, like I mentioned, paying the homage to Robin Williams' character with you know a couple of the lines here and there, the couple of way that he delivers those lines, uh, but then giving it such you know such his own fresh take with the writers, with the performance and the songs, you know, with adding the different chemistry, with bringing his character into his own. You know, one scene that comes to mind is when they after the Prince Ali song when they're at the at the party that the reception for Prince Ali and, you know, he goes to Mina Masood's a lot and he's like, don't you mess this up with me. I've been in a lamp for 10,000 years. I need to, you know, I, yeah. I like a good party or whatever. And I think that, you know, that is something that you would never imagine mm. Robin Williams saying in his genie role, but it fits perfectly with this new version of the genie. And, you know, some people might think that that line is a bit distasteful, but I think that people of our generation and a little bit younger are going to really vibe with, with that performance from Will Smith. Yeah, you know, look, I think the character design is not great either. You know, I don't think that, you know, that the character is particularly, you know, lovely to look at. Uh, But at the same time, (laughs) at the same time, like, I just have to say in the most respectful way possible to people who are really harping on this, just get over it. There's so much more to this character uh, than the bad character design. And okay, yeah, maybe at first you have a few chuckles or when you saw the trailer, uh, okay, yeah, he looks a little weird, but okay, that's ju- you know just put it aside and enjoy the performance because there is so much to enjoy about it. I think, um, and just harping on uh, the the poor character design is is kind of again kind of a lazy critique, and I think that you're right. Yeah, because you could, you didn't even have to watch the movie to make right. That critique. Yeah, you can just do it from the trailer. Yeah. But there's something a lot more playful and modern about this genie, which I really liked, uh, and I think feels very consistent with. You know, the Will Smith of old, right? This feels like the Fresh Prince Will Smith, the guy who, you know, became one of the biggest movie stars in the world off the strength of that performance on The Fresh Prince. It doesn't feel like the Will Smith who, for the past few years, has kind of just been doing the same role over and over again. And, and honestly, it really makes me excited to see Gemini Man later this year because it looks like a really interesting movie. And, you know, he's obviously anchoring that with a, with two performances in one, really. Does so, so he does do a, a really good job of creating a new character. I also like there are a couple of moments where he's definitely calling back to Robin Williams, and I think it's appropriate uh, to do so. And he doesn't overdo it. Like one, one that comes to mind is when Aladdin is sort of getting a makeover uh, when they're in the desert, you know, after they've escaped from the the cave, and the genie sort of turns into this like sassy, sassy fashion design fashion designer who's like you know sizing Aladdin up and. Call, you know, calling out dimensions and all of this stuff that needs to be done with Aladdin's look. And like, I could just hear Robin Williams voice in my head doing that same bit. And to the point, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen the original. It, he may even do a similar bit in the original movie. I, I honestly can't remember. But yeah, there were definitely times where um, 
you could you could tell he was trying to pay homage to Robin Williams, and I think that's totally appropriate because it is such an iconic performance, and people still want that taste of what they loved. But as I think applies to the whole movie, they don't lean too much into that, and they're more concerned with foraging a new path. And I think that Will Smith does an excellent job, and really, I just had a smile on my face every single time he was on screen. All right. Uh, Let's finish off by talking about the performances by talking about some of the other supporting characters. Of course, I guess Marwan Kanzari would be the other major role. He plays Jafar. Um, and then we've also, we've already mentioned Nassim Padrad, who plays sort of the new, the main new character in the movie, um, which is Dahlia, the handmaiden to Jasmine. Uh, a few other performances as well in the cast. Uh, what did you think about uh, the other supporting members, Scott? Yeah, and in, in terms of... Uh Marwin Kanzari as Jafar. I think it, another piece of interesting casting, I think, when, when we first heard about this and we first got that look about of Jafar and to hear his voice in the trailer, it probably caught us a little off guard. He doesn't quite have that menacing gravitas voice that we might have expected from a classic Disney villain, right? But that being said, I think once I got into this movie and was and you know, I got a feel for it, understood what it was trying to do a little bit better, I think that this version of Jafar actually because they lean so much into that inferiority complex that Jafar has, I think that this character actually made a lot of sense in terms of the casting here. And I was ultimately a lot more positive on this casting than I expected when I was going into it, which is probably a theme for for this movie, for the both, the both of us being something more positive on the back end than we were going in. And I think that his his kind of squeaky almost voice for the character while trying to add on those layers of gravitas and menace because you can see that the effort of that performance being put in, I think matches exactly what Jafar's trying to do on screen, right? Like he's trying to usurp the authority of the Sultan, uh, who is, is it, I forget who plays the Sultan actually, but is it, oh, Navid Nagab, Nagaban or something. I, think, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I apologize. Okay. Yeah. But I, I think that, that that ultimate performance ends up being quite good. It's not going to be the most memorable, but just because it doesn't have certain elements uh, that I you know discussed, it doesn't have that menace, doesn't have that gravitas that we might expect. But I think because it's less memorable, you know, maybe three months from now, I think it also fits the role better, right? For those reasons that I've already mentioned, I don't need to repeat. And so I actually quite liked his performance, even if I don't think it you know necessarily met the performances of Will Smith or Naomi Scott's either for for various reasons. For other performances, you know, I mentioned that I really like Nassim Pedrad's role. I think it's it's definitely a, a foil and a lighthearted comedic role that you know, obviously fits her as an SNL cast member. So I quite liked it. I thought like I mean, she good foil, a good confidant for Jasmine. And I think in the scenes where even though I think Jasmine does play perfectly fine on her own and is able to carry a scene by herself. I think, you know, you get different comedic elements when these two are on screen together or when the scene Pedrad's character is with Will Smith, things like of that nature, I think is is really funny. Maybe not all of those jokes work. Like one of the ones that I think I thought was a little bit more cringy than funny was the one where I think Aladdin and Mina Masood's character first breaks into the castle and finds Naomi Scott. And then, you know, Naomi Scott's trying to communicate to Nassim Pedrad's character that she's supposed to pretend to be the princess. I thought that was a little bit cringy. Yeah. Uh, that, that scene that didn't quite land. But I think besides that, most of the time, I think a lot of those, the, the chemistry and the combination of those two characters together really landed for me. Yeah. I mean, look, between Booksmart and Never Going Back last year, I mean, we love a friend, a female friendship, folks. We really do. Uh, and I think this is another great example. Uh, and I've seen Lady Bird the year before. Yeah, sure. Um, I think 
Uh, Nassim Pedrad does a great job here. She has good comedic timing. I mean, you, you can tell that she's uh, an accomplished, funny woman uh, from her time on SNL. And I think it, it really shines through here. And I really, you know, like the scenes between, not just between her and Naomi Scott, but between her and Will Smith as well, because they do end up sort of having a little romance that sort of is the branching narrative for this movie. Like, that, that, that's how we, we book in the movie with, uh, you know, these characters. Um, and so I, I appreciated that. As for Marwan Kanzari, I don't know. I think it was one of the the weaker parts of the characterization for me in this movie. I think that they they tried to to make him a little more straight laced. Like, of course, everyone remembers uh, yeah, everyone remembers Jafar like as the creepy old man disguising himself as the creepy old man in like the original Aladdin. And I don't know. I think I kind of missed that edge to the character. It was a little. He was just a little too dry for me. Mm-hmm. There wasn't enough for me to hang on to there. I mean, his you know his his one goal in this movie is to become the most powerful person, you know, to overthrow the Sultan. And I don't know, it, it didn't feel like there wasn't much originality to the character. Um, I wasn't okay. that yep. interested in his quest. It just felt a little cliche. I agree with you that it, the performance gets a little bit better as the movie goes on, but I think he was definitely outshined uh, by the other performances. And I would have liked a stronger villain, you know, to, to anchor everything along the way. But you know, it, it doesn't take away, I think, too much from uh, the strong performances, you know, around the horn from the cast. From I guess two points to that right there, because I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. That I think that it's hard for, for I think for what Marwan Kanzari has, right, and what he's able to work with, I think that he does really well. And I think that his, like I mentioned, his, the, the, his certain characteristics, the voice, the look, I think it fits well, it, fit, it fits his goal well. The problem is, though, is that Jafar is still this one in this movie, right? In this version of Aladdin, is still this one dimen- is a pretty one dimensional character without too much even uh, wiggle room for any development whatsoever. And so it's it's a pretty limiting role. I don't know how much I want to blame Marwan Kanzari's yeah. performance for that because I think that, like I said, the certain elements that he brings to this role actually you know fit fit it pretty well. I do agree that what I wanted was just a maybe a, a quite different villain here in order for it to be better. Yeah, definitely. I think there's just I mean, I, I hear you. I think there's just nothing really memorable for me. Like even sitting okay. here yep. thinking about it, like I can barely remember what he even looked like. You know, before we get into the wrap up, guys, is there anything more you want to add about the plot? I think that uh, you know, it stays pretty true to the original in terms of, you know, the different story beats and uh, where the story goes and how it wraps itself up is is pretty faithful to the original, which you know is okay with me. But are there any anything anything about the plot you want to highlight, or any other sort of changes that they made to the remake that we haven't discussed so far? Yeah, I think the only big, the only other real change that we haven't discussed is that this movie really throws you right in to the mix. It doesn't really do much setup for the mm-hmm. story. It kind of throws you straight from you know Will Smith's monologue at the beginning to straight into Agrabah and Aladdin pickpocket and meet, you know, meeting Jasmine pickpocketing people, um, which I don't think is a bad thing, right? Like most people who go see this movie have seen the original, right? They right. don't need that, that lead in. And so I kind of liked the awareness of the plot too, that, uh, you know, you, knowing its audience has already probably already seen the original and, and just gets straight to work. And so uh, I, that's not really a, a part or an element of the plot, that's different, but the, I, I appreciated that from the, from the storytellers and from Guy Ritchie. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that while it would have been nice maybe to get a little more background on Agrabah, I think that 
we have the original film. And also this movie is too long. I mean, that, that's probably my main critique of this movie is that it is too long already. Um, so I, yeah. I don't think that adding that in would have really accented anything in the movie. I think that as enjoyable as the movie is, and I mean, I, I did think that it wrapped things up very nicely. I think there's probably a 15 to 20 minute stretch before the ending of the movie, which um, definitely dragged on a little bit. And for, for a, a movie that is ostensibly a family slash kids movie, there's no reason for it to be two hours and 10 minutes long. One of my bigger problems with like the plot and piecing things together, some of it felt like the parts that they stitched together and added in some new things felt a little bit forced and a little bit out of, some, some things felt a little bit out of place, right? As much as I liked the speechless song, for example, it was like weird that Jasmine goes into this daydream to sing the song and then pops back into like reality after singing it. I really like this song. This is a great singing performance. This scene itself and like the way that it's like plotted on screen and then she snaps back into reality or whatever after she sings it, like just fell out of place in the tone of the movie because like we don't see that sort of like pop out anywhere else. Everything else is like very in in the moment, the singing that they're doing. And that, I mean, that's not a huge critique, right? Like if that's my biggest critique of the movie, then this is a pretty good movie and it is a pretty good movie. But it is something that made me think of that when you talk about it being too long because I think an element of it being too long is that they did try to like add in new sequences, which I'm glad that they added in, but they didn't kind of appropriately cut other things to make this a little bit more, uh, le- right. make this more lean in, in, in other areas where it could have been used. I think some of the some of the scenes going through the city, whether it, you know, it's Aladdin pickpocketing someone, or, you know, even that opening chase sequence thing that goes on for a long time, which is not, again, like in, in other situations that, that may not necessarily be a bad thing. But when you think about a movie that's about, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes too long, probably could have cut that down a little bit. So, Scott, I guess my last question before we wrap up is with a much more successful remake under its belt than Dumbo was, are you feeling any better about The Lion King? Yeah, I think it's an, a, such an interesting question because we know—I mean, we know so much about the Lion King already, right? One of the things that I'm really excited about is, of course, like hearing those, hearing that music, right? Hearing that performed again in a new way, adding new elements, and with ne- like now having seen them do that with Aladdin and adding new tweaks and slightly updating it to for some more modern sensibilities. I'm kind of—I mean, I can't think of any songs at the top of my head that that need that modern updating with the Lion King, but I'm excited for them to do potentially like a slightly updated or refreshed some of, some of the songs in the Lion King. And if they do that well, I'll be really excited about that. For me, it just seems like everything we've seen from this movie is, you know, straight carbon copy of the original. And, you know, there is a place, there's a, there is a place in the world for that. I don't know if it's making it a major summer box office release because clearly something that you've said both on and yeah. off air, but is that the, the goal of it just seems so clear that it's just to make money. Right. And I, and I'm as I, I I think I have to give them the benefit of the doubt having done what they've done now with Aladdin that they could potentially do something like that with the Lion King. I'm just not sure that that's what's going to happen, right? I'm just not sure that, you know, Jean Favreau is the director that's going to do that. I'm not sure that the, they're going to do that with a property like the Lion King as successful as Aladdin was. Lion King was even more successful. Yeah, and I think if you look at like the talking points surrounding each movie like with with Aladdin, you know, the the talking point going into the movie was like about Will Smith's genie and how he looked a lot different than uh, Robin Williams' genie and how he was going to be a lot different from Robin Williams. And so, you know, already going into the movie, we're talking about how this movie is going to be different from the original. I think the opposite is true about what we're talking about with Lion King. We're talking about how literally that trailer 
was like a shot-by-shot remake of the trailer for the original Lion King movie. And so if the trailers are the same, then, I mean, don't we expect the same of the movies? Uh, And again, with Jon Favreau involved, I I just can't see it taking the same direction. So I think I'm with you. I kind of feel the same about this Lion King remake as I did before I saw Aladdin. But at the same time, I'm very glad we got Aladdin. You know, if this is the only good Disney remake this year, um, you know, at least we got one. And it, it makes me a little bit hopeful about, uh, you know, going forward maybe with some of the other remakes that they plan on doing. If they can get an interesting director in there like Guy Ritchie, um, then then there's, you know, a potential to make something that complements the original very nicely. Um, okay, let's move into the wrap-up, Scott. Favorite senior moment from Aladdin? Yeah, I mean, for me, with these Disney live-action remakes, especially the ones that are, you know, musicals of sorts, it, it's always going to be something m- musically related. And for me, it has to be the whole New World song, right? Like, flying over Agrabah. It's a beautiful scene. You know, you can complain about the look of Will Smith, but I think it's really hard to complain about the look of Agrabah and also, the, you know, the, the countryside, the desert, so to speak, uh, around Agrabah when they're flying on the magic carpet, when they're singing the song. I think that just – that is what brings back – all, all of the good memes um, uh, from the original animated. And not only is it bringing back good memories, but you're making new good memories too because of how good Naomi Scott's voice is, because of the chemistry between you know, Minna Masood and Naomi Scott. And, and I think that encapsulates so much of what's right about this, this live action remake, even though this is a particular moment where they are going for a straight you know, recreation of that original Aladdin. And so it complements itself well with the you know those other musical notes that I mentioned that modernize and update and refresh a little bit from the original version because that's exactly this this movie itself in in a nutshell is a mix of updating, modernizing, adding a little bit of Guy Ritchie flair, but still having that very solid foundation of the original. And so those are kind of the combinations of my favorite scenes from the movie. Yeah, you know, I think with all my comments about how what I enjoyed about this movie was that it it. Is different. I think I got to go with that friend like me uh, song mm. because I think, you know, you pointed out how different the lyrics are. And, you know, this is really the first time we get to see um, Will Smith on screen uh, as the genie. And I think that it's really an important scene for him in his performance because, you know, people are coming into this with a lot of skepticism about his performance. And I think one of the first things we hear is him singing this song. So he really has to sell it. And he absolutely does um, and really sets sets up his performance well for the rest of the movie and what I enjoyed about the character so much. And it's a great song. I mean, I I totally agree with you that the music is often a standout in these Disney movies, which makes me so hesitant about the Mulan movie, which is going to be next year, because I mean, at least early reports I was reading were saying that they're not going to have the songs in it, which to me is absurd because Mulan has some of the best Disney songs um, by far. That would be, I actually hadn't even heard that. That's insanity if they do that. Well, hopefully they've changed their mind on that. But I did read some early things about that. Um, but, you know, interesting. We'll, we'll see next year, I guess. We will. All right. Uh, let's put a score on it, Scott. What would you give Aladdin out of 10? 7.7. I'm going with an 8.0. Uh, I was really, really impressed with this movie. I had a great time. And I think uh, you should take your whole family to see it for some good, wholesome summer fun. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Take your family to see this. And just in general, right? Like as we close out this section, go see a, go see a movie right now. There's so many good movies out. I, you know, I put this out on Twitter, but my top three movies of the year so far, Avengers Endgame, Booksmart, and John Wick Chapter 3. I know this isn't Aladdin. None, none of these are Aladdin, right? But like they're all in theaters right now. That will like My top three movies of the year will probably not all be in theaters at the same time again. 
the summer started, you know, go, go see, go see a movie, right? Even if it's Aladdin, even if it's not one of these four movies that I just, you know, mentioned in this context, yeah, go see a movie. There's so much good out there to see right now. And it's way too hot outside. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. Even in Boston, right? I got back and yesterday it was 84 degrees in Boston, which geez. is so hot for this early. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. But yeah, I'm totally with you. Um, even if my top three movies may not quite all be out right now, because, um, you know, I got to throw under the Silver Lake in there probably at mm-hmm. this point. There's so much great. There's so many great movies out there to see. And, you know, smaller movies as well, like Booksmart. Um, go support them as well, because it's a great time to be a movie fan. Um, all right, Scott, when we get back from the break, we'll be talking about some big news items, including Robert Pattinson being cast as Batman. Uh, we'll also have some new Star Wars news, and we'll be talking about some huge trailers for Toy Story 4, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and the new Terminator movie. Uh, so stick with us. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we have a lot of news to talk about per usual. It seems like, uh, you know, the summer is a big time for movies. It's also a big time for movie news. And a huge item, which we sort of spaced and, and forgot to talk about on the last episode, um, was that Robert Pattinson has been cast as Batman uh, in the new Matt Reeves Batman movie. That is it coming out next year? Uh, maybe, maybe holiday next year. And I'll double check that while we talk. Okay. Yeah, but, um, you know, there are a couple of stories here kind of because we have Robert Pattinson, of course, being cast as Batman, which there's been a lot of mixed reaction to, as you would expect. And then we also have the news that Penguin and Catwoman are going to be the villains for this uh, movie, sort of in a callback to the Tim Burton Batman Returns, the sequel to his original Batman movie, which, of course, had Danny DeVito as Penguin and Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. Scott, first of all, what are your thoughts on Pattinson as Batman, and second of all, any ideas or, or uh, predictions or um, hopes on who will play these villains? I mean, we've known for a really long time that Ben Affleck probably wasn't going to return as Batman. And I think ever since it was officially announced, people have been going crazy about predicting who it might be. Some of the people that I follow that had their predictions thought it, it might be someone like Zac Efron on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, it might be an, an Army Hammer uh, type type actor type uh, person you know my perspective on that is that it really depends on what you want or what you're or what matt reeves is trying to do with his batman right and choosing robert pattinson i think is a deserved casting i think robert pattinson up up to it i think that he'll never be able to truly shake it but i think he'll he's been able to prove that he can surpass like he's moved past his time both in you know harry potter and the goblet of fire where we first originally saw him as cedric dickery but then also, of course, as Edward Cullen in the Twilight franchise. And so I think it's been a long, hard road probably for both he and uh, Kristen Stewart to overcome that connection with the Twilight franchise. But for me, I, you know, I saw Pattinson in High Life earlier this year, which is a completely different role than anything like Twilight whatsoever. And I think, you know, based on that performance, it shows that, you know, he either his range is massive or he has evolved dramatically as an actor. And I know he's been in other things since Twilight, too. But for me, I think this casting works and it gives me a pretty clear sense, I think, of what Matt Reeves is trying to do. I don't think he's trying to go for that Ben Affleck flavor of, you know, beat the living crap out of the person who's he's not going for someone who, you know, has 
you know, 90% muscle <laughs> on his body, right? He's going for the thinker, the more detective maybe feel of Batman, which we really haven't seen in a long, long time, if ever truly, right? I mean, maybe since Michael Keaton, even, honestly, with someone who's not well, super. Yeah, maybe since Adam West. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, good point. But I, I think even Michael Keaton, right? Like that flavor of Batman is maybe more aligned with what we might see with Robert Pattinson, right? Like we might see more of that flavor of, of a detective, less of the fighting type. And that's not to say that there won't be action sequences in Matt Reeves' Batman, of course, but I like that, right? I really I really like that direction. It's something different. It's moving away from the past, like this, you know, Batman versus Superman version of Batman. And so that in that sense, I'm really looking forward to it. If, if I'm not surprised, I'm a little bit, I was a little bit intrigued by it, right? And, and I think the announcement that the villains are going to be, I don't know if it's an official announcement, but the rumors that seem pretty pretty solid that the two villains are going to be Catwoman and Penguin, calling back to Batman Returns, you know, to your point, is very interesting, right? Like, I, there have been rumors that Kristen Stewart could play Catwoman, which, you know, as much as I think she also deserves a role like that, because she has proven that she doesn't need to be tied to that Twilight franchise. I think that that would be absolute suicide for this movie to cast Kristen Stewart in the Catwoman role. I think that that would kill this movie before it even got off the ground because as much as they've been able to get away from that association with the Twilight Saga, if they do... are not going to do it. There's no way. Yeah, I mean, if they do it, I, I like I said, I think that's absolute insanity for them to do it. Um, for, from my perspective, I a couple musings that I heard, th- these are not rumors of people who they're casting, but a couple musings around the Catwoman casting. I think that uh, I saw someone mention that they thought that either Jennifer Lawrence, who I think would be a, such an interesting choice for the role, but I don't think there's so little a chance she would actually do it based on her uh, seeming seeming aversion to doing superhero-esque franchises with her, uh, the, the talks that she explicitly asked to be removed from the X-Men franchise uh, going out of. Dark Phoenix, not that it ultimately mattered since they were acquired by Disney, and this is definitely the end of that particular era of the X-Men. Um, but yeah, it doesn't seem like she wants to be a part of a franchise. I could be wrong, and I would be pleasantly surprised if she ended up being Catwoman. But for me, another one, because I've been watching Killing Eve recently, I heard that you know Jodie Comer would be could be an interesting Catwoman, and I agree. I know that you have certain thoughts around who you would like to be, very strong thoughts of who you'd like to see Catwoman as. Um, but it's uh, for me, Jodie Comer would be a cool pick. And yes, even the one that you're about to mention, I think would be a pick as well as for the penguin role was it josh gad who we talked about i can't remember yeah it, it sounds like josh gad is i mean it's not confirmed yet but it's getting close to perhaps that he's yeah, i mean i think it i think that fits perfectly it also um because it shows also that they're not just trying to recreate batman returns right like they're not trying to go down that road they're giving you a very different penguin than danny devito if josh gad is the person who they cast yeah, um, you know, with respect to the villains, my Catwoman that I want is Anya Taylor-Joy. I think that she totally has the look of Catwoman, for starters, and also yeah. she, you know, she's, I think her role in Thoroughbreds is, like, a, a great example of what a Catwoman-like role should be like, where it's dark, but it's also, like, there's there's a playfulness to it. And I think Michelle Pfeiffer actually was a really good Catwoman in Batman Returns, as much as I'm sort of cold on that movie, I think she was a good Catwoman. And I think Anya Taylor-Joy would be a great choice. And yeah, Jodie Comer is great too. Like I said, I think Catwoman needs to have dark hair, but I'm sure, you know, she she has a lot of different hair colors in Killing Eve. So I think that uh, that wouldn't be too much of a problem to to work on that. Um, yeah, I mean, hair, hair color is just like so not an issue. I think not only just because like, yeah. people I think are have demonstrated serious, you know, act, actors, actresses have been willing to demonstrate that they'll change their hair color for their roles. But also like you just put on a wig, right? <laughs> like It's not that difficult. Yeah. 
As for Penguin, you know, Josh Gad, I think he probably is a good choice. He just doesn't really get me excited. And in trying to think about who would get me excited, I don't know. The only name I could really come up with was Steve Carell might um, be an interesting mm. choice uh, that, that I would definitely be in favor of. But I don't know. It, it seems like Josh Gad is pretty set in stone. Like, first of all, he really wants the role. And second of all, I think he does conform, at, at least from what we know, to – uh, what seems to be Matt Reeves' vision for this movie. So I think it probably will be him ultimately. And, you know, we'll see whether he does a good job. As for the Pattinson casting, I think that I haven't seen him in a lot of movies outside of Twilight, but I think it's so, and I mean, I haven't seen Twilight either, but, um, you know, I think it's so dumb to judge this casting based only on what he did in Twilight because he has really, he and Kristen Stewart both have made a very conscious effort to get away from that Twilight legacy since the Twilight Saga has come out um, with the choices that they've done. I mean, Kristen Stewart was in like some Olivier Assayas' movies and like... And she's on the road too. Right. And Robert Pattinson has been in Good Time, The Rover, Maps to the Stars, the David Cronenberg movie. Like he has done some really strange projects. Uh, not what you would expect, not where you would expect an actor High to go. Um, yeah, following a, a huge hit like Twilight. So I think that they have done a great job of distancing themselves from that. And it makes me very interested to see what he's going to be able to do in this role. Um, you know, it, I'm someone who, short of, you know, them casting Adam Sandler or something, I'm not going to pass judgment on uh, this person until I see the movie. And, uh, you know, I think it's dumb if you are judging us based only on Twilight, because I think ultimately he's probably going to do a really good job. But We'll see. I thought Ben Affleck would do a good job as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I actually liked Ben Affleck's Batman. Uh, clearly, it's not the direction that Matt Reeves' vision took him um, in terms of what he wanted from, like, both visually and also from a persona type for Batman. I think that to your point about Robert Pattinson, like, not only looking back, you know, backwards looking at the movies that he's been in, but also forward looking, like he's in this, he's in the Lighthouse, which just showed at Cannes, you know, these past couple of weeks, and you know, that's like a black and white horror dark fantasy movie it's like you know some you know really out there i think directed by robert eggers yeah maybe. i did the witch and then like he's way yeah exactly and you know and he's gonna be in chris nolan's next movie he's in the movie called the devil all the time which it doesn't have a release date yet but i've here is like a very different type of movie and then i did look up that batman release date and it's looking like summer 2021 is the release date currently so that's that's our Batman news um, quite a bit there, but a lot to look forward to, I think. You know, as, as many Batmans as we've had, I think we still haven't seen all there is to see of this character. So we'll see whether Matt Reeves can give us something new. Scott, some other news. Uh, Mel Gibson uh, is in talk for his latest movie, which is going to be a remake of the Sam, Sam Peckinpah classic Western, um, The Wild Bunch. He's in talks with. Michael Fassbender, Jamie Foxx, and Peter Dinklage all to star in this movie. Thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, just to sum it up really quickly, I'm not a fan of Mel Gibson. I don't get excited about Mel Gibson movies. But when you're going to start talking with a cast, like with Michael Fassbender, Jamie Foxx, and Peter Dinklage, it's hard not to pay attention, right? You know, Western's not my genre of choice. I know you're a much bigger fan of Western's than I am. But, you know, if he's going to cast these people, um, I've, you know, I love these characters or these actors and, you know, different movies that I've seen them in. And so it's going to be hard for me not to pay attention to it, not to go see it as much as I'm maybe not a fan of, of Mel. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love Westerns. The Wild Bunch is considered one of the best Westerns of all time. Not one that I've had the chance to catch up with um, yet. But 
you know, I think it probably lends itself well to a remake. It's been like 50 years since the original came out, I think. Um, and, you know, you know yeah, as, as much as we, we may not like Mel Gibson as a person, I think there, there are going to be a lot of other people involved in this movie um, that are worthy of support. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. Okay, um, Scott, you know, in our last episode, we talked about John Wick 3, and we talked about how the probability of a fourth movie seemed very high. Uh, and in fact, it was so high that a short time after we finished recording that episode, they did announce that John Wick 4 will be coming out in May 2021, a little bit of a shorter window than they've had between the other sequels, I believe. But I imagine you're excited for this as well, based on our comments last time. Well, you know, and you mentioned that it came out shortly. I mean, we're talking a matter of like minutes after we finished recording this news came out. Um, and then, you know, to your second point about the actual movie, I think it's actually roughly the same amount of time that came between two and three. I think maybe just because we weren't following two uh, up to the minute with our podcast, but it did come out in 2017. So it was a pretty short turnaround for two to three as well. So I, they're very much on this, you know, two year turnaround schedule. Uh, for the, these John Wick movies, and it, you know, it makes sense why they clearly love making these movies. And yeah, hell yeah, I'm absolutely excited about this fourth one. And I, I'm excited that we don't have to wait that long to get it. As I said last time, like I'll go anywhere with this franchise, these directors, and Keanu Reeves at this point, and um, I'm happy that we don't have to wait too long for what I'm sure is going to be another excellent actioner. All right, Scott. Moving on now with a little MCU news. We got some more details on the Falcon and Winter Soldier series, which, of course, is going to be one of the uh, MCU series uh, on Disney Plus when when that streaming service comes out. And actually, one of the details is that the series is going to be dropping around August 2020. So we'll have to wait a little bit from the time Disney Plus is released for, to get this series. Which is what we expected. Like, they, they did say that this wouldn't come out. And they didn't say it would come out close to release. They said that the WandaVision was the only one that would come out, you know, in that first kind of six-month yeah. period post-release. Yeah, and it's going to be six episodes, which I think has pretty much been the norm uh, for these series at this point. And we also learned that it's going to feature Daniel Brühl um, as Helmet Zemo and Emily Van Camp as Sharon Carter. Of course, the is it the niece or grandniece of Peggy Carter? Yep. They're going to be reprising their roles from Captain America: Civil War. Yeah, um, yeah, they're reprising their roles. I thought that that was super interesting, right? Like, I don't know. Uh, this is another question yeah. mark around what exactly they're doing with these MCU. TV shows on Disney Plus, right? Because we already know that WandaVision, of course, is going back to the 1950s. We don't really understand how they're going to get there or what the setup for that series is. And I kind of feel the same about this. Like, Helmet Zemo, like, I, I actually, I'm, this is... Remember that well, guy? No, I do remember that guy because he was probably one of the, like, most underwhelming villains in the MCU of all time, right? Especially when you consider Daniel Brühl is a great actor. Well, yeah, and so in some ways I'm excited, right? Because we're going to see we're going to get a lot more Daniel Brühl. He'll, yeah. pr- I mean, uh, presumably get a lot more range here. Honestly, can't even remember if he died at the end of Civil War or, not, if, they, or if they just put him in prison or whatever they did with him. Because I, I, I know Black Panther. I thought Black Panther killed him at the end of the right when he like leaves and cap it. It doesn't seem like that stuff really matters anymore. Well, no, so that's what I'm saying because I like I thought he died at the end of Civil War, and so if that's the case, yeah. then I don't know when this is taking place. I don't know what the context is because it seems kind of crazy to me if they don't have Anthony Mackie as Captain America in this new movie because like that's what people are going to be excited about. They want to see Anthony Mackie with the shield, right? Right, and so if they're doing that, it's presumably taking place after Endgame, and if it's taking place after Endgame. Like what again? Like what is the setup? Interesting that Sharon Carter is coming back in this as well. Like I think this is super interesting. And I, this is like, let me be clear. This is not a complaint. I'm very intrigued by what they're doing with this, 
right? Like, you know, if we are introduced to a multiverse in Spider-Man Far From Home, and that is the direction they're going with the series, then it maybe makes more sense that we're like, this is how like this, what the, at least part of the setup would be for some of these series. But if not, I, I like that we're kind of in the dark here. Like we, we're getting details about little elements or that are going to be a part of these series, both with WandaVision and now of course with Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I'm excited about that because I don't know what this is going to be. I don't know what the setup is. And honestly, I think it's better that way. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. Like the more questions, the better I think as Marvel has shown by now that uh, they they can resolve those questions in a satisfying way. And rather, you know, they keep us guessing in the way that they did a lot of times in the MCU. Uh, then put it all out there on the table. I think they do a good job of giving the you know the fans just enough detail to whet their appetites. And I think. I'm definitely at that point now with this series, uh, learning all of this. I think it will definitely be interested, interesting to see how these characters play. And, you know, I mean, like Sharon Carter, she sort of had like a, I mean, they, were, they teased a romance between her and Steve Rogers. And like, obviously, Steve Rogers isn't really going to be part of this. So it's just interesting to see what it's going to be interesting to see what kind of role she's really going to have in this um, show. But, yeah, I'm open to it. Okay, speaking of cinematic universes, Scott, the perhaps the strangest cinematic universe that is out well, there. The biggest um, dud of a cinematic universe, I have to say. I mean, yeah, I say cinematic universe when really there was only one movie, and then they were like, this cinematic universe is dead. And then they're like, no, maybe actually we're going to bring it back now. That, of course, is the dark universe, um, cinematic universe, uh, the universal monsters universe that they planned, starting with The Mummy, um, the Tom Cruise remake. Uh, which you know was a huge flop, both critically and commercially, I believe. Um, oh. And after that, they kind of were like, "Well, I don't know if we're going to even do anything more." But now we've learned that they are going to come out with the Invisible Man movie in 2020, March 2020. Um, Lee Wannell directing and writing, and Elizabeth Moss is going to be starring. Yeah, you know, for me, I just I don't care. I'm going to be really honest at this point. Like, I like. I mean, Elizabeth Moss. You're not excited for The Bride of Frankenstein with Javier Bardem in like 2028, probably? <laughs> I mean, but like The Bride of Frankenstein with Javier Bardem, that's something I can get excited about. That, that I love Javier yeah. Bardem. That casting is super interesting in that movie. Um, could be uh, super interesting in that, in that sense as well, right? Like I, that's exciting. But The Invisible Man, I don't know anything about The Invisible Man. I didn't read the book. I don't know anything about this character outside of that trash uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie from with Sean Connery and you know as much as I like Elizabeth Moss for me she's not someone who when she gets cast in something in a role that I don't know what it is like I'm not gonna get excited about it yet Uh, not at that level with her so I mean this movie they're taking the right approach right they had a complete flop in the mummy it more or less killed their universe and at least it, it made them scrap their plans for their that they had originally for their universe and so they went back to the, I mean, it sounds like what they did is they went back to the writer's table. They went back to the production room and like, all right, we're in a bad situation here. What do we need to do to, you know, create a universe or, or take a new approach to creating these like um, dark universe, universal monsters films. And what they, what they did and what they came out of is, you know, a one, clearly a one movie at a time approach. And, you know, they're not putting the cart before the horse. They're creating this invisible man movie. They're going to do this Bride of Frankenstein movie. And it seems like kind of the approach that the like DCEU has taken in the last few years, in the last few films, kind of since Justice League, right, with Aquaman and then earlier this year with Shazam. And that's the right approach, right? They need to make some good movies and then, you know, worry about piecing it together if 
if you know they are creating good movies that can be pieced together, right? Like take one step at a time, and you know maybe five, ten years from now we have we do have a, a dark the monsters, uh, the, the monsters version of the oh, Avengers God, or something. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm not excited about this. I mean, I'll probably see it when it comes out, just because we see everything. It seems like, um, but yeah, I, I can't say that I have any sort of hype for this movie. I mean. I'm seriously going to eat my shorts if this comes out in March 2020 because they don't have an Invisible Man yet. It was supposed to be Johnny Depp, right? And now it's not. So unless Elizabeth Moss is playing the the Invisible Man, which I don't think is going to be the case, then there's no way this movie gets made by March 2020. And if it does, it's going to suck. You know, we'll see. I mean, I will say though, like this this current situation for this movie is better than casting Johnny Depp anything. Like, I don't know why anyone in Hollywood yeah. cast Johnny Depp in literally anything. I used to like. Well, that's probably why they pulled him. Well, yeah, like I used to like Johnny Depp. I'll raise my hand. I enjoyed him in Pirates of the Caribbean. I enjoyed him in some other stuff. But I mean, like he sucked last year in as Grindelwald and in, in the hair and you know the Wizarding World, the Fantastic Beast movie. He sucks as a human being. Clearly, he's like suing everyone to try to like cover his name when he like, I mean, I have no idea what exactly transpired between him and Amber Heard, but he just seems like a shitty human. And I don't know why anyone would cast him in anything. Yeah. And I think that's all there is to say about that. But speaking of casting, Scott, Christopher Nolan's new movie, which we've talked a good deal about has added uh, a couple of new members to the cast. Um, in addition to Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth, Debicki, John David Washington, Michael Caine, the people we already knew of, uh, we're also going to have Aaron Taylor Johnson and Kenneth Branagh, who was, of course, uh, in Nolan's last movie, Dunkirk, um, in the already star-studded cast for this movie, which I couldn't be more excited for. Yeah, no, I thought it was Aaron Taylor Johnson. My only thing I could see was the the only the other ATJ. Uh, yeah. <laughs> column. Uh, I don't know if I have any more to add because at this point, I don't know who they can cast in this movie to get me more like to get me more excited about this film because I'm already so excited about it. So you know. All right, you, you, everyone can go silent. Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> you, know, you know, yes. <laughs> Couldn't cast Michael B. Jordan, and I would be even more excited. So fair point. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm ready. I know this movie's already filming, so we just got to wait a year, and this movie's going to come out. Woohoo! Uh, unlike the uh, Invisible Man, probably. But um, anyway, moving on to Star Wars news. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic, the acclaimed Star Wars video game, which is still beloved after almost 15 years, has been rumored to be providing the story uh, for, well, we're not exactly sure whether it's going to be one of the Benioff and Weiss movies. I mean, probably you would think because those are the movies immediately uh, in the works, but it's going to be adapted uh, for some Star Wars movie over at Disney. Uh, We learned that this week. And Scott, I don't know if you've played the game. I haven't. Uh, I probably should have because it is so well-regarded and I am a huge Star Wars fan. Hey, it's I mean, on PC. You can go play it. It's a Bioware game. It's great. Right. Well, and I mean, this game is like like Christian Harloff, I heard, saying that like outside of Empire Strikes Back, it's like his favorite Star Wars story um, in the whole universe, uh, which is pretty cool. And like something else that he was saying was that, uh, you know, that one of the places Star Wars has gone wrong in the past with the prequels and even like with The Last Jedi in terms of how it appealed to fans was like, they're not, they're afraid to adapt anything. And like, there's so much Star Wars canon out there, whether it's video games or like, there's like 50 novels that are all considered canon, but they won't adapt any of them because, you know, they have whatever emphasis on making something original in the Star Wars universe. And maybe that's why some of, you know, the prequels and even The Last Jedi to an extent fell flat with people. Um, 
Does this get you excited that there's a chance that Benioff and Weiss might be adapting this already out there property uh, for one of their movies? You know, what's so interesting is that I guess first, yes, this gets me really excited. I think that this is in terms of segueing into films that are unrelated to the Skywalkers. This is great because it's not it's you don't have to like A-B test the the story, right? Like people love this story. It's a you know a classic game. Um, people all the time demand a remake of this game, right? And the fact that we're going to get it in a movie form, I think it's something that you know the Star Wars fanboys out there who just ripped Last Jedi, and you know maybe some of some of the other like more creatively inclined movies. I think that they're they're going to have a tough time ripping this one if it ends up being a, a good film, right? Like they're not going to bag on you know the story and the plot points because this 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 story has been tried and tested and people are a fan of it. So in that sense I think it's a great segue to doing stories outside of the Star, the Skywalker universe and other in another time period for Star Wars in general. Second, I actually don't think this is going to be a DB, the, a DBY film because this is being written by a female and it's notable because it's the first movie in the Star Wars universe that that's being, you know, executive produced and written by a female. You know, Disney and particularly Lucasfilm has been, you know, just completely eviscerated, I feel like, time after time for not for only having white men in the writer's room. And the fact that they have a, a, a female writer who has pretty good, I think, sci-fi fantasy experience. I'm forgetting what her um, past work has included right now, but I know she has that experience. I think that's really exciting. And I'm not sure where this is going to come out, if this is going to be a theatrical release, if this is going to be a Disney Plus drop. Yeah. I think I think we'll learn a lot about what that's going to be when we understand a little bit more about the extent of this movie, right? Like, is like maybe this does end up being the Weiss and Benioff trilogy. Maybe they do break this story up into into parts and do you know either have this be the first part of a trilogy or break this movie down into three. I think that's a bad idea. I'm not suggesting they should do that, but you could see that doing because this right this is a 20 plus hour video game. It's not a two hour movie, right? Um, so it could be interesting. And from what Harloff said, you know, it could easily break into three movies. Right. So it'd be interesting to see if that's the direction they go or if this is, you know, a Disney Plus drop, which I could see, you know, being very, you know, for those Star Wars people who might be skeptical of The Mandalorian or don't, you know, already own all the Star Wars movies, so don't need Disney Plus. This could be something that gets those gets those people onto Disney Plus, right? That, that could be something that attracts people to the service because it's because it's not it's not a new IP, right? It's it's a told story that people love, that people want more of. And so I could see them just dropping this straight to Disney Plus. Personally, of course, I always hope that something comes out in theaters, right? Like I want this. To, I want to go see this on the big screen. But I also wouldn't be surprised if we if we get this uh, on Disney Plus too. If it ends up not being the Benioff and Weiss trilogy. Yeah. No. I mean, I think you you you've adequate adequately st- accurately stated the uh, the two uh, solutions here. I think this is either going to be the Benioff and Weiss trilogy, or it's going to be a Disney Plus drop. Personally, I'm done with either, but would definitely prefer a theatrical release just because as much Star Wars as we can get in theaters, I'm down for it. But because, you know, because of what I mentioned with how they are hesitant to adapt uh, any existing canon that, you know, we haven't seen on the big screen before, it does seem like maybe Disney Plus is the more likely route for this movie. But who knows? We will see in due time. Okay, Scott, one last news item before we talk some trailers. Uh, not surprisingly, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie has now been delayed to Valentine's Day 2020. Um, you know, we heard that um, they were going to, after the backlash to the trailer, they were going to redesign Sonic. And now uh, it seems like, you know, this pushback of the release date 
uh, is a product of them having to do some significant redesigns of Sonic, which honestly, probably for the best. <laughs> I don't know if I have anything to add. I, I mean, there, of course, there's a, a huge conversation there around creative license and whether or not you should be responding to fan criticism. Uh, of course, this is different, I think. I mean, they're the ones who are going to see the movie. So They are the ones who are going to see the movie, but you, and then you have... Or not see the movie. Or not see the movie, sure. Right, which is ultimately what... I mean, they want people to see the movie, right? I mean, it's one thing to, I guess, talk about some legitimate problems you might have with the CG animation of, of a beloved hedgehog sonic of course Sonic has a beloved kind of mascot of the sega genesis uh and it's another thing then to start a petition to like rewrite and redo game of thrones season eight right that's just so dumb and i don't <laughs> want like people like that to feel empowered to do things in the future there of course is there are situations and license to do things in different areas in very specific situations my biggest concern is that in the future next time you know, some small minority group of people, like next time someone does like a Star Wars movie, they're going to like write to ask like, I don't know, Ryan Johnson to be like killed or some something stupid <laughs> like that. At the end, you know, I just don't want to empower fans yeah. to the point that they should take creative license over series because it's really not their place. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you vote with your money when you go see the movie, right? And uh, absolutely, like if you don't like something, don't go see it. Don't support it. I'm all for that. But I, I don't think fans should be taking creative license over certain things. Yeah, you know, much like Tennessee fans stopping... Uh, Tennessee from hiring Greg Schiano. I think this is an example of fans using their powers uh, for good rather than evil. But I agree with you that it's definitely a slippery slope um, when you're talking about this sort of thing. But um, probably for the best when it comes to Sonic. But still, a Valentine's Day release is going to be weird. <laughs> I really hope no one goes on a date to see this movie. From yeah, I hope so too. But uh, I guess it would be you know. It, if you're that kind of couple, it would be sort of funny, but um, but only if the movie's good. It's not funny if the movie sucks. Like, I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong there. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Scott. Before we c- conclude today, let's talk a, f- a couple of trailers because we did have some big ones. Um, first of all, uh, trailers for movies that we already had some trailers for, but the final the final trailer for uh, Toy Story three or uh, <laughs> Toy Story three Toy Story four uh, dropped. Uh, Scott, are you any more or less excited for this movie after seeing this trailer? You know, I didn't, I mean, I think this trailer was probably the best of the ones we got. You got more of a sense of what the overall tone of the movie is going to be. So in that sense, I think I'm maybe marginally more excited. But at this point, I think the, the damage or compliments that the trailers have done for getting me excited for Toy Story 4 have, have, you know, run their course. And now we're just, we're going to see this movie in, in less than a month. And that's that. Yeah, I mean, I was going to see this movie regardless of how the trailers were. Um, so I can't say that they really like added to anything for me. But I did enjoy in this trailer getting to see Keanu Reeves as the Canadian stuntman um, who looks like he's going to be a pretty funny character in the movie. Um, I just hope that they're able to break new ground here with this one because there are parts where it does seem like a, t- a tad of a retread of the first Toy Story. But, you know, knowing the success of this franchise, one of the greatest trilogies of all time, for being honest. Um, I, I have full faith in the people over at Pixar to uh, crank out another enjoyable Toy Story movie. Speaking of people I have full faith in, Scott, Quentin Tarantino's new movie, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, has come out with a second trailer. Of course, this movie actually had its worldwide, worldwide um, debut uh, this past week at the Cannes Film Festival. It was given a six-minute standing ovation uh, at the end of the movie, which I think is probably sounds a lot better than it actually is because my understanding is that every movie gets a standing ovation at Cannes. So it's probably not that big of a deal, but you know, six minutes, I guess is something to 
not not something to be taken lightly. And a lot of the reviews have been really positive for this movie. So so did this new trailer? Uh, you know, we got to our first look really at Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, a few other um, new maybe sort of story details. We didn't really know a lot about the story of this movie. Um, even from the first trailer. Did this new trailer add anything for you, Scott? I think it added it in that it gave me more of the same, right? I still don't think I have a good yeah. uh, understanding, even from this trailer, of what exactly this movie is going for beyond the very you know broad strokes declining actor um, plot point that that is pretty, pretty obvious uh, given the two trailers that we've gotten and obviously just the details of the movie that have been released. I'm fine with that, right? Like I don't need to know exactly what this movie is about. To, to be excited for it and go see it because the vibe that I get from the trailer, not necessarily about the plot details, but the vibe and, and the performances from the trailer that I'm seeing, they, they more than have me on board for this movie. And, and uh, I'm very excited for it. Not going to lie. Yeah. I mean, this is another one that I was like, you know, I would have seen no matter what the trailers were like, but yeah, I, any, any kind of footage that we can get from this movie is only going to make me more excited because I love Tarantino's films. This is my most anticipated movie of the year. And loving the reviews that I'm reading so far. Um, you know, I think this is going to be a great movie. And honestly, in terms of the story, like I think we probably know about as much as Tarantino wants us to know. And I'm fine with that because he's definitely done, done enough over the years to earn our trust. So um, all that's left now is just to see the movie, but we got to wait. Yeah. I mean, it looks, it looks awesome. Right. And coming out of can just to talk about that point, like it sounds like all of the main performances in this film, DiCaprio, Pitt, Margot Robbie, are probably all going to be in the in the conversation for Oscars, which doesn't surprise us, right? But it's confirmation of something that we suspected. And so it's confirmation that these performances are probably going to rock. Yeah, he always gets great performances out of his actors. And I'm sure this will be no exception with, um, you know, some really talented people involved and actors that he's worked with before, you know, with DiCaprio and Pitt. So uh, really, really, really excited for this. Um, okay, Scott, final trailer that we got um, was for the next entry in the Terminator series. Um, which is Terminator Dark Fate. Um, you know, Scott, I'm I'm a casual fan of this series. I, I enjoy the original Terminator trilogy, but I'm not like a super fan. And when I saw this trailer, I thought, okay, this looks kind of interesting. But it seems like uh, a lot of what I'm hearing from people who are bigger fans of this series uh, is that they were a little disappointed in it. It looks more like the last two Terminator movies, Genesis and Salvation, which, of course, were not very well received. Um, what were your thoughts? Of course, we do get to see Linda Hamilton returning to the series. Arnold uh, is in the trailer and Mackenzie Davis, um, who is new to the the franchise is also pops up in this trailer. So thoughts. Yeah. I'm kind of in your boat with like, I think I've seen the first two Terminator movies. I think I saw one of those more recent ones. I think the one with Sam Worthington, maybe salvation. salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't like that much. Um, so I'm not like a, a, a super follower of that franchise, but I do think that this is something worth getting excited about, right? Like clearly the people who care a lot more about this franchise than I do are very excited about this film. And so that gets me excited. And just from the look of it, like when we saw last year with Halloween, that having this, you know, having the original actress return in a role is can can be really successful when we when we had that happen in, in the Halloween sort of refresh that retconned most of that universe. And, you know, when we see Terminator Dark Fates retcon a, a lot of the Terminator universe, if that is what it does, I don't know if that's what it's doing or not, but uh, it looks like it might be doing that if it happens. And uh, Linda Hamilton sparkles in that performance. I think that I won't be surprised and I'll be pretty pleased with it. I probably will rewatch the first and the second Terminator movies going into this movie uh, later this year. 
Uh, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to, you know, getting a good entry point to get me excited about this franchise going forward. And, and of course, I'm sure that, um, you know, the makers of Terminator really want their franchise to pop again, to have a, a good property property there to, to work on in the future. And, you know, I'm sure their goal is got to have Arnie in the, in the film to, to, you know, get the, you know, get those eyes on, on the movie. Of course, that's the point of Linda Hamilton as well, but obviously they, they definitely have long-term ambitions, I'm sure. And what they want is, is they want to be able to create a franchise handed, handed off to a new person, I'm sure. And probably right now, I mean, I don't know if Mackenzie Davis will be that person they handed off to. I would be happy with that because I love Mackenzie Davis. They're, they're hoping to create a good movie, I'd imagine, and allow them and craft themselves a path to, to set up that transfer going forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, not being steeped in Terminator lore, I can't say exactly what it is that some big fans were sort of skeptical about with this trailer, but it looks okay to me, and I think that, um, you know, getting Linda Hamilton back is a good step. You got Tim Miller, you know, the Deadpool director uh, over this thing, and you have David Goyer, the Dark Knight writer, who's penning the screenplay. So all good people involved. Uh, of course, it remains to be seen, but, uh, you know, whether the, the pro- end product will actually be good, but I'm optimistic. So am I. All right, Scott. Well, that should just about do it for this week's episode. Where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton 2013 And you can find me at Scarby Dent. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support the show, don't forget about our Patreon page. But if you choose not to support our Patreon page, that's okay, too. It's patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Uh, we would still love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which we will be reviewing the Elton John biopic, Rocket Man. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.